On December 9, 2014, the Montreal Canadiens hosted the Vancouver Canucks. Usually, a mid-season Tuesday night game would not garner national attention. However, this game was different. A week prior, on December 2nd, Jean Beliveau had passed away at the age of 83. The Montreal Canadiens, who already typically were well known for holding excellent pre-game ceremonies, outdid themselves in honor of the man whose number four hangs from the rafters of the Bell Centre. Throughout the ceremony, his wife, Elise Couture, stood by their daughter and granddaughters as the Canadians and their fans paid tribute to one of the greatest players to grace the ice. In the coverage and articles in the days following his death, the hockey world reminisced about the man whose kindness was renowned. The couple was so involved in the community, both during and following his career as a Canadian, that Elise had been bestowed the nickname the First Lady of the Montreal Canadiens. The 10-year captain and 20-year veteran of the franchise was loved and revered by all of hockey, and this ceremony certainly demonstrated that. A frequent statement made in memory of the player was that he had changed the way the game was played. How he did so isn't really clear though. Beliveau only won the Art Ross Trophy for leading the league in points once, and the Hart Memorial Trophy for the league's MVP twice in 1956 and 1964. He did win 10 Stanley Cups, which even at this point in time was still a team accomplishment and certainly not an individual one. So how did this player, who at the height of his career was dominant, not win multitudes of awards, but still be allocated a spot in the conversation of players who changed the game? Beliveau certainly demonstrated how a player should carry themselves off of the ice, and it is impossible to argue that his community presence, both during and following his career, is anything short of exemplary. However, that doesn't show us how he managed to change the game. How exactly did he change it? What actions did he perform that specifically show us a change in hockey? Well, it comes down to three goals, 44 seconds of ice time, and one very costly hooking penalty. Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I washed my hands before it was cool. And this is Storytime Hockey. Every game that is played has a set of rules. Once games or sports progress to a high competitive level, these rules are often accompanied with some sort of punishment or deterrent to make sure the players abide by the rules of the game. This promotes sportsmanship while also creating a level playing field for teams to focus on certain aspects of athleticism that make the game unique. Early hockey was no different, and as the sport moved from a pastime to amateur competitive and then eventually professionally competitive, the rules and deterrents were codified. Up to 1916, the professional game dealt with different transgressions on the ice through fines and players would be assessed penalties that were divided into major and minor fouls. As much as current fans of hockey love to poke fun or mock the rules and actions of soccer, the method of monitoring player behavior when it comes to fouls was very similar. In hockey, a major foul led to immediate banishment from the game. 
Players were assessed major fouls for infractions, such as throwing their stick to prevent a goal, cross-checking, charging, deliberate hooking, tripping, and lastly, foul language. Makes you wonder how long today's players would last in a game under these old rules. Minor infractions were different, and drew upon the three strikes and you're out template. Players would draw a caution for their first and second infraction before being turfed upon receipt of the third. It is also important to remember that teams were much smaller in overall size than they are today. In the modern NHL, benches carry 20 different positional players for a game, while at this point, teams would have anywhere between 7 to 9 players. It was a very different game than the one we enjoy today. However, these rules, originally established as the Halifax or Montreal rules, depending on whose version of history you want to follow, gave way to removing players from the ice for their infractions in the 1930s, and it moved away and got rid of the banishment and financial penalty. It is worth noting today that players still are fined financially for transgressions on the ice, but that is under a collective bargaining agreement between the National Hockey League and the National Hockey League Players Association. Most penalties, at this point, would end up being filed under the minor penalty rule and players were assigned three minutes in a new addition to the game, the penalty box. As a side note, separate team penalty boxes did not exist at this point, and players were sent to serve penalties in the same designated space, a quirk that was not changed until 1963. Under these rules of sending players off the ice for a temporary set of time, the era of the power play began. With a player removed from the ice, the opposing team would have a numerical advantage for three minutes. For decades, this was just seen as part of the game. However, in the 1950s, a shift began where people wanted to see the punishment of preventing a goal more adequately reflect the action itself. Enter the Montreal Canadiens and Jean Beliveau. Beliveau broke into the public focus during his time playing Junior A with the Victoriaville Tigers and the Quebec Citadels of the Quebec Men's Hockey League. It was here that he met his future wife Elise, and his pride and loyalty to the city of Quebec grew. Beliveau was frequently pursued by the Canadians over the years while playing Junior A and Junior B, as they would visit Beliveau at his home, at work, or in public. Three weeks after turning 17, he joined the Junior A League, which was expanding, unknown to some, under the support of Montreal General Manager Frank Selkie. Beliveau would dominate the league, and in 1949 would join the Citadels. Selkie convinced the Montreal ownership to purchase the Quebec Senior Hockey League and turn it semi-pro. In doing so, Selkie gained access to many of the players in the league who were under some sort of contract. Since joining the Canadians in 1946, Selkie had made it a goal of his to promote organized hockey throughout Quebec and to create some sort of feeder system directly to the Montreal Canadiens. There's no debating that this worked, as by the mid-1950s, the Canadians had 13 affiliate teams throughout Canada and the US dedicated to supplying them with new talent. In doing so, he found himself players such as Bellevaux. By the early 1950s, Bellevaux was still not dedicated to joining the Canadians, and Selkie was determined to bring him fully into the fold. Players at this point would sign either A, B, or C contracts, which were designed to claim players' rights. In 
Beliveau refused to sign a C contract and would sign a B-level contract with Selkie, which committed him to the Canadians should he turn fully pro. While on his honeymoon, the Quebec Senior Hockey League voted to become professional under the guidance of Selkie and the Montreal Canadiens. In doing so, the players in this league under B contracts, like Beliveau, would have a clause triggered and steer them towards a no-option scenario to sign professionally with those teams. Beliveau would end up signing with the Canadiens on October 3, 1953, on a five-year deal at the age of 22. Beliveau had recorded 50 goals and 39 assists in 50 games the year prior with the Quebec Aces. It was clear Beliveau was destined for hockey greatness, and Selkie, understandably, was not prepared to let a talent like that slip through his fingers. It was while playing with these Montreal Canadiens that Beliveau ended up having a role forcing the NHL to make a change and how penalties were administered. On November 5, 1955, the Canadians were playing the home leg of a weekend back-to-back against the Boston Bruins. The Canadians, coached by Toe Blake, were comfortably in the league lead while the Bruins were in the middle of the pack. The Bruins were also coming off a one-game-and-six-night stretch while heading into a period of playing five games in nine days. It was clear to the Bruins that this back-to-back was wildly important to their success over the long run. In the early part of the Saturday night game, the Bruins scored an early goal and then referee Jerry Olinsky sent off both Maurice Richard and center Ken Mosdell for separate tripping infractions, leading to a 5-on-3 power play and a goal scored by Bruin Doug Mons. Up to nothing, the Milt Schmidt side had started the game well against the league leaders. However, late in the first period, Cal Gardner was sent to the box, and then 16 seconds into the second, Hal Lecoe was sent off for hooking. The Canadians' prolific power play set to work. Already feared around the league, they made short work of the Bruins. 42 seconds into the period, Bill Olmsted freed a puck in the corner and found Beliveau in the slot for his first. A similar play led to another goal for Beliveau at 108 of the period, and then a final third goal was scored at 126, finishing a 44-second power play hat trick for Jean Beliveau. The Bruins were understandably upset by this turn of events, and they communicated their displeasure with Refelinski, leading to the ejection of Bruins defenseman Bob Armstrong. Later that game, the Canadians were again penalized, two men. However, the penalties were killed by the unit of Floyd Curry, Ken Mosdell, Doug Harvey, and Dollar Saint Laurent. Beliveau would score again in that game, a 4-2 win for the Habs. The following night, the Bruins and the Habs fought to a 3-3 tie, Beliveau again scoring another goal. The league was put on notice that the Habs' power play was too strong, and the Bruins, naturally, were incensed by the ability of the Quebecois team to turn the game so quickly in their favor. The discussion of changing the rule in the NHL was officially being had. This was not the first league to consider the change of the power play rules, nor was it the first time the conversation had been had among the upper echelons of NHL administrators. Clarence Campbell had approached the Western Hockey League, the survivor from the PCHA, to consider changing their league rules to allow for a player to return to the ice following the successful power play goal. Art Chapman, GM of the Vancouver Canucks, was the WHL administrator approached by Campbell to consider the rule, and he had been asked to prepare a report for the end of the year to give to the NHL general managers. The discussion continued through the year, and Campbell, now the president of the NHL, 
was quoted on January 4, 1956, outlining his thoughts on the issues. He told the Montreal Gazette, A foul conceivably can prevent a goal, but only one goal. Why give the other team a chance to score more? Through the change, we would simply conform with the logic of our own rules. He also drew attention to Rule 34B of the NHL rulebook, where if a goal scored during a delayed penalty, the penalty would be erased. There was a significant disparity between the actions that caused a penalty and the potential repercussions of taking one. The conversation continued around the logic of power plays throughout the season. However, this was far from the only dominant power play of the year, let alone of recent memory. This was confirmed when the NHL released statistics on power play success on January 10, 1956. The Windsor Star reported that along with the discussion of changing the rule, the NHL had taken a serious look at the numbers behind first and second goals scored on power plays that season up to late December 1955. The second place Detroit Red Wings, featuring the talents of Gordie Howe, Alex Delvecchio, Ted Lindsay, and Red Kelly, actually had a more successful power play than the Canadians, recording goals on 33 of their 75 opportunities. The Habs had recorded 37 times, however drew significantly more penalties than the Wings with 103. When given a two-man advantage, we can start to see the issues with being allowed to record multiple goals on a single penalty. The Canadians recorded goals in three of the eight two-man advantage power plays, but recorded five total goals. Consider the Red Wings, who had a two-man advantage ten times, but recorded two goals on two of the power plays. It is clear that the Habs were a dominant power play unit, as were the Red Wings, yet the goals scored per penalty were illogical. The Canadiens continued to dominate with their power play, and that was praised by fans and despised by other teams. Lester Patrick, now retired, noted that their power play was without equal. Bruins coach Milt Schmidt stated that the Canadians have the greatest power play in hockey. Because other teams can't stop it, you say that they can't kill penalties. They've got guys like Harvey on one of the points, and he handles the puck like a forward. They've got Jeffrey on, a good stick handler, with a hard shot on the other point. And they've got Beliveau, the Rocket, and Burt Olmsted on the forward line. They make plays that would be a joy to watch if they weren't making them against you. Fast forward to the end of the season, the Canadians finished with 100 points, 24 ahead of the second place Detroit Red Wings, and 50 ahead of the last place Blackhawks, led by former Montreal coach Dick Irvin. Beliveau led the league with 47 goals and 88 points, well clear of Howe who recorded 38 and 79. Across all stat categories, the Habs were dominant as the only stat categories that they did not have an individual lead the league in were shorthanded goals, shutouts, and penalty minutes. Jacques Plante still recorded a spectacular 7 shutouts, and Beliveau led the team with 143 penalty minutes. They walked through the Rangers and then the Red Wings on their way to the Stanley Cup. The league was showing a clear difference between the haves and the have-nots, and Clarence Campbell was prepared to implement some sort of change to move the league back towards some semblance of parity. On June 4, 1956, Campbell hosted the 39th Annual General Meeting for the NHL General Managers. The seventh item on their list was a report from the Rules Committee which specifically noted and put forward two changes. First, that no players were allowed in the neutral zone during warm-up in an effort to prevent any Charlestown Chief-like shenanigans, as had occurred more than once in the year prior. Secondly, 
the penalty offender was allowed to return to the ice after his team had conceded a goal. In a resounding 5-1 vote, the motion was carried forward. The only dissenting vote was Frank Selke, general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. Despite it being the logical choice and the best idea for the health and future of hockey, Selkie voted no. His reasoning had little to do with the support or resistance of the rule change. However, it represented what is likely the truth behind the rule change. Selkie felt that the league was organizing in an attack on the strength and ability of the Montreal Canadiens. In a conversation earlier that season with other general managers, he was quoted as saying, You might outvote me, but you'll never convince me of its justice. In all the years of Detroit's dominance and their almighty power play, there was no suggestion of such a change. Now the Canadians finally built one, and you want to introduce a rule to weaken it? Go get a power play of your own. While the league of course attempted to try and present the rule change as simply representative of the natural growth of the game, Bruins general manager Lynn Patrick drew a direct connection the following year back to the Belleville Hattrick game. It was clear the effort was being made to clip the wings of the high-flying Canadians. It was too little too late, however, as the Canadians would go on to win five Stanley Cups in a row and eight in 13 years. So what was it exactly that gave the Canadians such an advantage that even changing a rule due to their dominance did not actually keep them from dominating? One reason is the fact that the Canadians simply had the most dominant farm system in the NHL. When Selkie was relieved of his duties in Toronto and moved to the new position in Montreal, he made a dedicated effort to convince ownership that the long-term health of the team could be accomplished through the system of affiliate teams. By the 55-56 season, the Canadians had 13 of 45 junior team affiliations or sponsorship agreements in the NHL. This compared to the 7 for Detroit and New York with an additional shared team, 6 with Chicago and Boston, and 5 connected to Toronto. In doing so, the Canadians were able to lock down more players and increase their odds of successfully finding top-end NHL talent. As well, the financial stability of the league was coming into play. The ratio of salary to revenue was growing as salaries had stagnated and revenues across the league increased. Of particular note, owners and managers were emphatic that they did not want players discussing their salaries in an effort to keep costs down, one of the early signs that a union might be needed in the NHL. This was shortly to be created under the guidance of Ted Lindsay. It was important to continuously find young, highly talented, and cheap players to fill out your NHL lineup, again reinforcing the value of scouting with affiliated teams. Keep in mind, the NHL entry draft as we understand it was not held until 1963, and its preceding interleague and intraleague dispersal drafts were wildly ineffective. Additionally, it is important to draw a spotlight to the Chicago Blackhawks at this point in time. The owners, Arthur Wirtz and James Norris, were frequently finding themselves icing a team in near-empty arenas. They were threatening to fold the team after a two-year combined financial loss of $750,000, a staggering amount of money for the time. The Hawks were even generating revenues by hosting games at alternative locations, such as St. Louis and St. Paul. If the Blackhawks were going to be financially viable again, they needed both a league that they could be competitive in, 
as well as a visible path forward to relevance and potential success. Lastly, the Canadian's dominance can be attributed to a combination of general manager ability and the ineptitude of the surrounding league. Selkie had been cast aside by the Toronto Maple Leafs and landed in Montreal where he began an era defined by the success of the team. Dick Irvin had left the role of coach in Montreal to take the helm in Chicago, leading to the return of former Canadian Hector Toe Blake to the team, this time as a coach for the next 13 years. Even with those two at the helm of the team, it is the players in the end who win games. In the early 1940s, Montreal GM Tommy Gorman had grown frustrated with a young player on his roster. He was an explosive scorer, but frequently found himself injured, and despite his best efforts, Gorman could not move the contract of the brittle, undersized forward. Luckily for him, Maurice Richard quickly found his place in the NHL and went on to dominate goal scoring in the league for the next 17 years. This had nothing to do with good management, but more simply luck. This wealth of information forces us to adjust our understanding of the power play rule change and what exactly it was intended for. In the modern recollection of the rule change, it's often attributed to the dominance of the Canadian power play. Specifically, it quite frequently recalls the hat trick that Jean Beliveau scored in 1955. However, it is simply irresponsible history, as it's clear that the Canadians were not the only dominant power play at the time. Long before the rule change was created to curb the Canadian's power play, it was motivated by the competitive imbalance in the National Hockey League, the drive for financial gain by a team ownership, the desire to save the franchise in Chicago, and lastly, a little bit of logic. The next section of the podcast will focus on players who you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to the players that score occasionally, get traded for second round picks, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. The selection of this player was inspired by the research done in looking into the power play of the 1955 Montreal Canadiens. How wonderful a nickname it is for Elise Couture to be the first lady of the Montreal Canadiens. As the research continued, head coach Toe Blake played a significant role in the success of the franchise. For the longest time in the practice of researching and entering his name into databases, nothing seemed out of place until I eventually registered that, of course, there's no way his name is actually Toe. Unlike modern days, first names of the first 20 years of the century could usually be picked from a list of 50 names. Nobody was that overly creative. Toe, of course, is a nickname derived from a younger sibling who was unable to say his full given name as a toddler, Hector. Luckily for Hector Blake, he pursued a career in hockey as a coach and a player. A world where the nicknames run as the dominant method of referring to one another. Hockey, of course, prides itself on the use of nicknames and is also famous for their inability to be creative when making them. Simply adding a Y to the end of a name or perhaps an ER sound and suddenly a nickname is created. 
Patrice Bergy Bergeron, Sergey Bob Bobrovsky, and Kevin Hazy Hayes are just three examples of the lack of depth to some of the nicknames. Fortunately, some players earn nicknames worthy of mention. Marc-Edouard Vlasic earns a nickname Pickles, thanks to his shared last name with a food company. Paul Bissonnette Desnasty earned his nickname while playing with the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins of the American Hockey League, a combination of his last name with an appropriate description for his play and demeanor towards opposing teams. Of course, we are graced with nicknames that come from players' achievements and accomplishments. Ryan Captain Canada Smith received his nickname for his consistent high level of play on the international stage, as well as David Captain America Bacchus, Jordan Mr. Clutch Eberle, and TJ Sochi Oshi for their clutch and important performances on behalf of their countries. The Perfect Human, The Great Eight, Sid the Kid, Super Mario, The Great One, and Mr. Hockey, all of these names register some sort of memory with hockey fans. One nickname that may not register with all fans is that of Sudden Death, the moniker attached to the Bruins and Maple Leafs right winger John Melvin Hill. To add to the nickname narrative, he of course went by his middle name, often shortened to Mel. Mel Hill was born in Glenboro, Manitoba in February 1914. He played junior hockey with the Saskatoon Tigers in 1932 and then would go on to play for the Saskatoon Wesleys, Sudbury Wolves, and the Sudbury Miners men's senior team. His final year, he scored 18 goals in 15 games, along with 8 goals and 14 assists in his team's march to the 1937 Allen Cup Championship. Later that year, he moved to the professional ranks where he joined the Boston Bruins and spent most of the next season with the Providence Reds of the IAHL, a predecessor to the American Hockey League. He recorded 13 goals and 10 assists in 40 games in his first professional year. It was in the 1938-1939 season that Hill established himself as a full-time NHL player and also made a significant name and nickname for himself. In 46 games with the Bruins, he scored 10 goals and had an additional 10 assists. The Bruins finished first in the NHL with 36 wins in 48 games, despite having sent four-time Vezina winner Tiny Thompson to the Detroit Red Wings the prior offseason. They rode the hot play of new goalie Frank Brimsek, who recorded 10 shutouts that season, including two three-game shutout streaks. The Bruins went into the playoffs prepared to play the New York Rangers in the first round. Game 1 started slowly until Rangers' Alex Shebeki scored the first goal halfway through the second period. Later in the first, Bill Cowley, the Bruins' leading scorer from the regular season, put the puck past the Rangers keeper to tie the game at one. That was it for scoring during regulation, as the game would go to a first, a second, and then a third overtime, before with 35 seconds left in that third overtime period, Cowley sent a pass down the wing to Hill, who beat goaltender Davy Kerr with a high shot. The Bruins took a 1-0 series lead back to Boston the following night, and would tell a similar story. Roy Conacher and Bill Cowley scored midway through and late, during the first period, to stake the Bruins to a 2-0 lead. Shabiki scored his second of the series for the Rangers three-quarters of the way through the second, and Dutch Hiller would tie the game with two minutes left in the game. For the second straight game, the Bruins and Rangers were headed to overtime. With 8.24 left in the first overtime period, Hill played the role of hero again, 
dispatching another goal past Kerr and staking the Bruins a 2-0 series lead. The Bruins would win Game 3 by a comparatively wide margin of 4-1, and with their backs to the wall, the Rangers would win Game 4 2-1, and then push the series forward again with a 2-1 overtime win and a 3-1 win in Games 5 and 6. This would be a first time that a series would go to a full 7 game in NHL history. Game 7 was held at the Boston Garden on April 2nd, 1939. After a scoreless first period, Ray Getliff would give the Bruins a short-lived lead and Muzz Patrick even the score less than 2 minutes later. The third went scoreless and the teams were for the fourth time in 7 games headed to additional frames. A first overtime period passed with no goals and again the second period passed with no goals. It was in the third overtime frame that Cowley picked up the puck behind the Rangers net with 8 minutes left in the period. Mel Hill went to the front of the net and received the pass. He held onto it for a moment before flipping it into the net on the short side. At this point in the series, Hill had become known for camping in front of the opposition net in the high danger area. He scored the biggest goal of his young career and had sent his team to the NHL final. Most importantly for our story, he had solidified his nickname for the rest of his playing days, Mel Sudden Death Hill. The Bruins would go on to conquer the Maple Leafs 4-1 in the 1939 Stanley Cup Final. The line of Roy Conacher, Bill Cowley, and Mel Hill finished the playoffs with a combined 16 goals. The rest of their team had 12. Hill would play two more years with the Bruins, winning a second Stanley Cup in 1941. Hill would move around the rest of his NHL playing career, moving around from the Hershey Bears to the Springfield Indians and then the Brooklyn Americans. The Americans folded and had his rights transferred to the Toronto Maple Leafs in a dispersal draft. It was with the Maple Leafs in 1942-1943 that he had his most individually successful season with 17 goals and 44 points in 49 games. He would win the Stanley Cup with the Maple Leafs in 1945. After one more year in the NHL, he played for the Pittsburgh Hornets before playing in the lower-level senior hockey leagues until 1951. He finished his NHL career with 324 games played, where he recorded 89 goals, 109 assists, for 198 points. While not a record-setting career, Mel Hill will always be remembered for his contribution as a rookie with the Boston Bruins and their brilliant first-round matchup versus the New York Rangers, and for providing us as hockey fans with one of the greatest nicknames in hockey history, Mel Sudden Death Hill. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, proud owner of two Buffalo Slug Buffalo Sabres jerseys and one Mighty Ducks of Anaheim ball cap. Thank you for listening. Please click like, subscribe, or whatever other option is provided to you by your podcast platform. Every review and rating you leave behind increases the odds that this podcast will appear in someone else's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and hit five stars. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next episode. 